Then the Lord said to Moses, Set up the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, on the first day of the month. Place the ark of the testimony in it, and shield the ark with the curtain. Bring in the table and set out what belongs on it. Then bring in the lampstand and set up its lamps. Place the gold altar of incense in front of the ark of the testimony and put the curtain at the entrance to the tabernacle. Place the altar of burnt offering in front of the entrance to the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. Place the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. Set up the courtyard around it and put the curtain at the entrance to the courtyard. Take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and everything in it. Consecrate it and all its furnishings, and it will be holy. Then anoint the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils. Consecrate the altar, and it will be most holy. Anoint the basin and its stand and consecrate them. Bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance to the tent of meeting and wash them with water. Then dress Aaron in the sacred garments. Anoint him and consecrate him so that he may serve me as priest. And bring his sons and dress them in tunics, and anoint them just as you anointed their father, so they may serve me as priests. Their anointing will be to a priesthood that will continue for all generations to come. Moses did everything just as the Lord commanded him. So the tabernacle was set up on the first day of the first month in the second year. When Moses set up the tabernacle, he put the bases in place, erected the frames, inserted the crossbars, and set up the posts. Then he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering over the tent as the Lord commanded him. He took the testimony and placed it in the ark, attached the poles to the ark, and put the atonement cover over it. Then he brought the ark into the tabernacle and hung the shielding curtain and shielded the ark of the testimony as the Lord had commanded him. Moses placed the table in the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle outside the curtain and set out the bread on it before the Lord as the Lord commanded him. He placed the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle and set up the lamps before the Lord as the Lord commanded him. Moses placed the gold altar in the tent of meeting in the front of the curtain and burned fragrant incense on it as the Lord commanded him. Then he set up the curtain at the entrance to the tabernacle. He set the altar of burnt offering near the entrance to the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, and offered on it burnt offerings and grain offerings as the Lord commanded him. He placed the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it for washing. And Moses and Aaron and his sons used it to wash their hands and their feet. They washed whenever they entered the tent of meeting or approached the altar as the Lord commanded Moses. Then Moses set up the courtyard around the tabernacle and altar and put up the curtain at the entrance to the courtyard. And so Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled upon it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. In all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and fire was in the cloud by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel during all their travels. Would you pray with me? 
Lord, thank you for the gift of your word, and thank you for the gift of Godwin preaching your word to us. I pray that you would use him now to point us to lift high the name of Christ and show us your glory. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. Good morning. Nothing like a violin in that song that we just sang to get the waterworks going for me. I was trying to figure out uh, whether I should bring up a glass of whiskey and a Kleenex box uh, for this last sermon, but I thought that might be a little inappropriate. You never know what's in here, though. Uh, Before I preach, I want to say a word of thank you to this church. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to serve you as a pastor. Uh, It has been uh, one of my greatest joys to serve you as a pastor. Thank you for being patient with me as I grow as a preacher and as a counselor and as a shepherd in this church. Thank you for discipling me and my family. You see... When a pastor comes to this church, he doesn't just come as a shepherd, he comes also as a disciple in need of further discipleship. And I want you to know, church, you have fulfilled your call to disciple me and my family. You have fulfilled that call to disciple us, so thank you. Thank you for loving my wife well, thank you for loving my children so well for supporting them and encouraging them, and especially for praying for them. I can't tell you how much that means to me. One of the reasons we love this church so much, Jenny and I, is because when we come here on Sunday mornings, Jenny and I feel like we're coming home. Because you have become so dear to us. When I say that word home, I wonder what comes into your minds, what memories home conjures up for you. Maybe it's good memories, maybe it's difficult memories. What comes to your mind? Maybe it's wrapped up in a particular home and as you walk into that house, maybe for the thousandth time uh, in a few days here, Thanksgiving or or Christmas, everything brings back memories, the the, the smells, the furniture, the the decorations, the, the food that lines up on the table. And beyond the trimmings and the stuff that kind of lays around, the most important thing, of course, that makes a house a home is the people, right? And often we have to look backwards and dig into our memories for that experience, that fond memory of home. For Christians, home isn't behind us. It isn't found actually on this earth. Real home is found when our feet plant themselves on the new earth. That's home in a new age when we see Jesus face to face. That's when we know we are home. So many times our nostalgia pulls us backwards instead of pushing us forwards. Home is forward for God's people, not backwards. For Israel in Exodus... Whenever their journey got hard, they always looked back towards Egypt. Always. They complained and 
you know, about the tough road ahead and they wanted to throw in the towel and head back to Egypt. They were constantly grumbling about the food and the water, and you remember that. And when Moses was up on this mountain talking to God, they did it again. They went back to Egypt, this time by building an idol that they could worship, a golden calf. Church family, your home, which is ultimately heaven, is ahead of you, not behind you. And because it's easy to do, you may be tempted to think that what's really true and good and meaningful are the good old days of South Shore Baptist Church. In the past, maybe when the church was a little smaller, maybe when there were certain pastors still here, maybe when you felt like you had more of a place, more of a role in this church, and now you feel a little lost. But God is moving you onward. Home is ahead of you, not behind you. And as you close one chapter in your history with three of your pastors now leaving, you may wonder what the journey ahead looks like. A new chapter in the life of South Shore Baptist Church awaits. What do you need to do to prepare for this new season? Well, I think Exodus chapter 40 will help us. This passage can be broken into three sections. The first section Uh, Building plans, verses 1 through 15. Moses gets some plans about how to build this tabernacle from God. Second section, the construction phase, uh, verses 16 through 33. Moses stands on the very footprint of the tabernacle itself, and he starts to assemble it, put it together. And then the third section, move-in day, verses 34 through 38. When God comes in glory to dwell with his people. That's Exodus 40. And along the way, I think we will see some important applications for you and for this church. Last time we were in Exodus, we were in chapter 19, we were on a mountain. We recognized that Israel couldn't get up to that mountain where God was. And after that chapter in 20, God gave Israel, his people, his covenant laws, the Ten Commandments. And then following chapter 20, we see uh, God gives Moses and God gives Israel these tabernacle instructions. But instead of building the tabernacle, they grew impatient again and they built this golden calf. So Moses had to mediate for Israel. And he prayed to God and said, God, don't be angry at your people. Give them another chance. And he did. So here we find ourselves now as God's people were obedient, and as they started to put together these different pieces of the tabernacle, we find ourselves looking at an obedient people in Exodus chapter 40. There's lots of items here in these first 15 verses as we look at the building plans. We don't have time to discuss all of them, but I want you to pull out your insert for just a moment. Maybe you've already looked at it. There's a picture. It says the tabernacle at the top. Now, I want you to see three main sections of the tabernacle. First of all, the courtyard, which of course is outside the main temple. Then there's the temple proper or the holy place. And then finally, behind the curtain, the holy of holies, where the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat were. And it was in this holy of holy place in particular where God would dwell. 
In fact, the mercy seat was the lid of this ark, and it was, it was known as the footstool of God, as if God, God's being was in the heavens and just his feet touched on this ark. He was in the heavens, and yet he was with his people. What a beautiful picture. Now, where did these three sections of the tabernacle come from? Well, they come from the Garden of Eden. That sounds a little strange. Let me explain. Scriptural teaching shows us three sections in the Garden of Eden. There's the mountain where God was especially present. There's the garden itself where Adam and Eve dwelled, sometimes obviously with God. And there was outside the garden. So the point is that God in this tabernacle was creating a new Eden for his people. A new home for himself. And it would be a traveling home. It would be a portable Sinai. That's what God was doing in this tabernacle. Now, you may know this already. Seven is kind of a big, a big and important number in Hebrew scriptures. The number seven. It, uh, it's a number that indicates completion and fulfillment and perfection. Well, I want you to notice something as we look at these verses Uh, In verses 1 through 8, there are seven sets of instructions. These different pieces of the tabernacle. And that's followed by verses 9 through 15, seven anointings. God wants his people to anoint certain pieces of the tabernacle and the priesthood. As if God was marking out the proper building of the tabernacle as a very significant event. And God expected complete precision and exact obedience as he was looking at this tabernacle. Here's the lesson. God, God is after real repentance. That might sound a little strange because uh, we don't see repentance at all in this passage, right? We've got to look at the bigger picture again. We have to remember that just a moment ago, Israel was building this golden calf instead of building stuff for the tabernacle. So putting these pieces together in this way, in this manner, these were acts of obedience, but they were also acts of repentance. God wants his people to repent, and in this case, it's corporate repentance. Uh, Embedded in this passage, though, is a word of encouragement for those of us who are repenting. Look at verse 12. In the middle of all this anointing and all these instructions, God says, Bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance to the tent of meeting and wash them with water. You know, the last time Exodus brought up Aaron, you know what he was doing? Do you remember what he was doing? He was fashioning for Israel this golden calf. That's what he was doing. He wasn't only complicit in Israel's sin, he was leading the nation into idol worship. Bring me your gold, bring me your jewelry, and I will make you a god. That's the last time we heard of Aaron. But look at what God was doing here in verse 12. God is reinstating Aaron and his sons as priests. Listen, church family, no matter what you have done, no matter what you have done, God can still use you when you repent. No matter how far you've fallen, no matter how despicable the sin, no matter how serious the flaw or the foible, 
God is in the business of taking jacked up punks like Aaron and reinstating them and giving them a fresh start. God is in the business of grace. This is what God does. Now, of course, there's consequences to sin. There are real consequences. You can't avoid that. You can't sweep that under the rug. But God works with the repentant, and he gives them a fresh start. And what this means, I think, brothers and sisters, is don't be afraid of repentance. It is the way forward. It is the way home. Even though it's incredibly humbling, especially as people come to find out about your sin and and your mess, it's hard to come out and repent, to confess. But you've got to trust that it will usher in health and joy and peace into your life as well. Some of you have fallen in your Christian life. You may feel like you're all used up, like you're spoiled goods. Maybe others have made you feel like this. Maybe you've been beating yourself up a little bit over the last few years. If you have repented, then you do not need to beat yourself up. There's hope. I don't want you to go one more day without receiving God's reinstatement. Would you on this day, this day, today, would you on this day receive his full and gracious reinstatement? You are not done. You are not washed up. You have been redeemed. And if you repent, you can be reinstated into the Lord's service. Do you believe that? Just like Aaron, just like Peter and Paul in the New Testament, if you know my story, just like me. So that's the building phase, the building plan phase, excuse me. Let's now look at verses 16 through 33, the construction phase. So Moses rolls up those plans that the great architect has given, given him, and he, he stands on the very footprints of the, the tabernacle, and he rolls up his sleeves, and he begins to get to work. And we see his faithfulness highlighted in this section seven times in verses 16 through 33. Seven times it says, and you heard this from Stephen as he read it, as the Lord commanded And that mirrors the seven sets of instructions that were given. In other words, Moses did everything just as the Lord asked him to. Precisely right. His faithful service was clear. But I want to point out another thing in this passage. We must remember that this is not just a story. This is not just history that Moses put together for us to read in the 21st century. There is a message behind this story. And to find that message, you've got to look for clues that Moses, the author of this, left behind. I want to show you a few clues. Look at verse 17. So the tabernacle was set up on the first day of the first month in the second year. So Moses points out that this is the first day of a new year, one year since the Passover event. This is about nine months since they have arrived at Sinai. And he says, he says this is a new day. The first day of a new season for Israel. Now what's the first verse in the Bible? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That was a new day too for God's people. And in this beginning here, God created a new Eden for Israel as we have talked about. Now look at verse 33. 
And Moses set up the courtyard and around the tabernacle and altar and put up the curtain at the entrance to the courtyard. And so Moses finished the work. Genesis chapter 2. And on the seventh day, God finished the work. What's going on here? Well, the details here mimic God's orderly pattern of creation. The tabernacle was a fresh work of God for his people. And here's what it means. Building the tabernacle marks a creation-like new moment in the history of Israel. He's doing a new work, and he will be with his people in a new way. Okay, so what does that mean for South Shore Baptist Church? You're not going to be building a tabernacle anytime soon. But today, in a, in a real sense, it's the close of a chapter and the beginning of a new chapter. Not just with my departure, but with the entire turnover of the pastoral staff within eight months. Now, how, do you, how, how else do you explain three pastors leaving within eight months? Um, there, there's no scandal. There's no sin. There's no tension. It must be the Lord. It must be the Lord, right? God is the master chess player, and in his wisdom, in his goodness, He's moving pawns around the board. God is the general, and in his goodness, he's deciding to redeploy his troops. This is God. It's not difficult to conclude that God is doing something new at this church. Maybe it's spiritual revival. Maybe it's deep cleansing and purification. Maybe it's preparation for a a new wonderful season of significant fruit and significant growth and significant expansion. I pray that it is. And like Israel, you, brothers and sisters, have a role. You, too, are called to be faithful like Moses and like Israel. What is your role in the days and weeks ahead? Well, it's to call a senior pastor. South Shore Baptist Church is a congregational church, and that means that God has vested his authority in you, the members of the church. And so, yes, you respect and you listen and you eagerly welcome the elders' leadership in your lives, but please, brothers and sisters, take seriously your responsibility to call a senior pastor. I'm saying what I believe, what I know, the elders and the search committee would say to you as well. You are not a rubber stamp. You don't just have a vote, you have a voice. And so let me encourage you to get involved. Let me encourage you to prepare yourself to consider this candidate who will be coming in December. You know, there's an election a few days ago. It's hard not to remember that. And many of us were at the polls on Tuesday making a vote. But dare I say that this vote in December, perhaps, is more important. Because this church is an embassy of the kingdom. And the kingdom of Christ is more important than the kingdoms of this world. So take your responsibilities seriously, brothers and sisters. I want to help you prepare a little bit this morning. That might sound bizarre. 
And my hope is that as we look at these verses, you will be helped and encouraged that these passages of Scripture will inform your thinking and then inform your conversations and especially inform your prayers as you make this important decision. So back of your insert, there's three passages. I'm not going to read it. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. Three passages to meditate on in the coming weeks. 1 Peter 5 and Psalm 23 talk about shepherding. 1 Peter 5 says that elders and pastors are shepherds. Brothers and sisters, you are primarily calling a shepherd. So I want to encourage you to look at these two passages which help you understand what does a shepherd do? What is a shepherd like? Meditate on these passages prayerfully. John chapter 1, you might think, if you know this, if you're familiar with this chapter, what in the world does this chapter have to do with calling a pastor? I think this is the perfect chapter to meditate on. The first half of this chapter, John chapter 1, is all about Jesus the Word and His coming. The second half of this chapter is all about John the Baptist, the cousin of Jesus. Interesting juxtaposition, Jesus and John the Baptist together. But what's interesting is when you get to John the Baptist, he declares to the people, I am not the Christ. He declares to the people, I'm not worthy to untie his sandals. You see, your senior pastor is not Jesus. But he should be a lot like John. You're not looking for the star of the show. You already got the star of the show. His name's Jesus. The chief shepherd. You're looking for the guy who holds the spotlight firmly on Jesus. That's who you're looking for. And you know the the primary way he holds that spotlight on Jesus for this church? It's by preaching Christ from all the scriptures, one Bible book at a time. That's how he's going to serve you. That's how he's going to love you primarily. God is calling you to call a shepherd, a preacher, a spotlight holder. This is the man God is asking you to call. And my hope is that as you meditate on these passages and when it comes time for you to vote as a church, you will do just as the Lord commanded. Let me pray. This is not the close of the service. I just want to pray right now. Oh, Father, would you be with this church? Would you be be with this dear church as they consider, Lord, a man and his family as they come in December? Father, we thank you for the hard work that the search committee has done in vetting and um, getting to know this man and his family. We thank you for the elders and their leadership as they have prayerfully considered bringing this man and his family before this church. And Father, we ask that this would be the man. This would be the shepherd. This would be the preacher and spotlight holder for this church. We pray that he would be the man who can come and serve and lay down his life for the good of the sheep. Father, would you call him? Would you make it clear? Would you make it clear to these dear folks? And would you give them courage in the midst of it all to do just as the Lord 
commanded. Amen. So, building plans, construction phase, and now move-in day. Verses 34 through 38. Let me read them to you one more time. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled upon it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. In all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and fire was in the cloud by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel during all their travels. Isn't it interesting, brothers and sisters, that the culmination of Exodus, the the climax of Exodus, it's not freedom from slavery. It's not freedom from Egypt and Egyptian life. It's not new land or a new city for God's people to dwell and live happily ever after. The climax of Exodus is God giving his people himself. What they built he fills with himself. And in that, he promises to lead them and be with them as he leads them onward towards the promised land of Canaan. Israel had this great journey ahead of them, and what they needed for their journey was was God's presence. They could not journey on without God himself being present and powerful amongst them. And that's what God gave them. That's how Exodus closes. Brothers and sisters, you are on this journey as well. And you are entering a new chapter in this journey. But I'm confident of this. God will be with you as you journey on. As I studied this passage this past week, it occurred to me that Jenny and I, in a, in a real sense, we are entrusting this church into God's hands. We believe that as you journey on, as you journey home, God will indeed be with you. And we will commit to praying for you often and eagerly and joyfully because we love you, because you've become dear to us. Brothers and sisters, as Jenny and I, along with uh, Sam and Emma and baby number three, who, by the way, we found out on Friday is a boy. I was, uh, I was jumping with joy and Emma literally was crying. So uh, you can go give her a hug later today. As we move on from this church, we believe God will be with us too. Our hope lies in that very truth. And you take that reality, you take God's presence away from us, and we've got nothing. And so I want to ask you to pray for us as well. That we would experience the presence of God as we move from here. We're going back to Michigan on Thursday uh, to live with my mom for a season. Uh, we are in the process of applying for other churches, and you can pray for us. There's two churches right now that we are, um, we are talking to, and we're excited about uh, those possibilities. So please pray for us. I know you already have been, and, and uh, I'm very grateful for that. For Israel, they would follow God's tabernacle from here into the promised land. 
It would take them much longer than they anticipated. They would get there eventually, and this portable Sinai would eventually become a permanent temple in Jerusalem. But during centuries of Israel's history, they were not the people God wanted them to be. So God did something. John chapter 1, verse 14, the word Jesus became flesh, and he made his dwelling among us. Literally, Jesus tabernacled with us. That's what that says. There's just a few occasions of this word tabernacle in the New Testament, and that's one of them. Jesus became God's tabernacle when he came to earth. He lived that perfect life. He died a brutal death for sinners. He was raised to new life. And now it's not a portable Sinai. Now it's not a permanent temple uh, where we meet with God and we worship. It's not about a location, it's about a person. And so we can worship Jesus, the tabernacle, in our hearts, anywhere we go. And today God's people still follow God's tabernacle on their journey on. We follow Jesus, and where is Jesus leading us? Let me show you. One more passage, Revelation chapter 21. Flip over there with me. This is the last place we see the word tabernacle in the scriptures. Revelation chapter 21, starting in verse 1. John is having a vision, and this is what he saw. He said, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men. Now the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Jesus is leading us home. And home means being with God forever. You see, the goal of salvation isn't uh, luxuries and food and pleasures forevermore. The goal of salvation is you get God himself. All of him. Heaven would not be heaven if you had all the stuff in the world, beautiful relationships, every enticing pleasure, and not God himself. That's not heaven. That's hell. But heaven is heaven precisely because God is there. And you get to experience him on this Revelation 21 day. You get to experience him fully and freely with no distractions, with, with no taint of sin, with no screens, no curtains, no more waiting. Here's a mountain you can run up and be with God, not just spiritually and figuratively, but literally. But of course, there's more. You see, there's a people that are with God. And that means that home not only means 
being with God forever, it also means being with God's people forever. On this Revelation 21 day, this day when the tabernacle of God will become the place of God's people, on this day we will all be together forever. That means the Rinnies, that means the Rogers, the Sathi and Nathans, and many who have and will leave this church. You know, I can't help but glance at that second pew and I, I can't help but remember who used to sit there. And that second pew right there and, and remember who used to sit there. So Jenny and I, we say goodbye today. Whiskey. (laughs) Jenny and I, we say goodbye today, but we don't say goodbye forever. I couldn't bear that. You see, heaven wouldn't be heaven without you all. This is our comfort. Every goodbye spoken between God's people in this age has a corresponding hello in the next. And when we say hello in the next age, we will never say goodbye again. Thanks be to God. Father, we are so grateful for the home that you are and will be creating for your people. We're so grateful that this home, this, this feast that we are going towards, that we are moving towards by faith, we're so grateful that you will be there in your fullness. And at your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. Oh, we long for that day to be with you unhindered, unfettered, no sin, just you and your people. Oh, Father, we can't even imagine what that looks like. And we are so grateful that it's not just me and Jesus. It's us and Jesus forever. Thank you, Father. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.